Take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 6. If this is your first time visiting with RBC, our senior teaching pastor, Jim Supp, he's out of town today and he will be returning in two weeks where he'll continue his series on the book of James. And next weekend, we have what's called Defending the Faith Weekend. And a man named Jay Siegert is going to be teaching on Friday evening, Saturday morning, both services Sunday. We'll be addressing uh, science and the reliability of Scripture, so I hope you will attend uh, for that. So we pick it up here in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, and that is where we will begin reading. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, so that no matter where we are and whatever's happening, we can love people on the way, and we can thank you for letting us meet today and to worship your name. Amen. Well, one day a young newly married Jewish couple arrived on a vacation in a remote village in Europe. What they didn't know was that an old German carpenter who lived in that village had been earnestly praying to God for a long time to be able to share the gospel with somebody who was Jewish. Although no Jews lived in his village, he prayed a very long time. After encountering the couple, the carpenter brought them a Bible. And before their vacation was over, both newlyweds placed their faith in Christ, becoming Messianic Jews. Eventually, the husband would be discipled by a pastor named Isaac Feinstein. Over time, the couple would fully surrender to Christ. Too soon, however, they would be faced with the consequence of one of the worst single-day massacres in Jewish history on June 27, 1941. That's when soldiers, police, and mobs tore through the town and savagely murdered 13,266 Jewish people, including their mentor, Pastor Isaac Feinstein. Not a single Jewish Christian survived. They wept, but Isaac's death gave them strength to stand for Christ. They preached in bomb shelters and rescued Jewish children from ghettos. Again and again, they were arrested and beaten. His wife's parents, two sisters, and one brother were killed in concentration camps. Yet, like Pastor Feinstein, they spoke of salvation to everyone, including prison guards and soldiers, and many came to faith in Jesus Christ. After the war, the communists poured in and they took over. By now, this stockbroker turned Lutheran minister preached in caves and bomb shelters and to congregations hidden deep within the forests. He preached boldly to the Russian troops and resisted pressure to swear loyalty to the atheistic rule. On one occasion, the couples were forced to attend what was called the Congress of the Cults. About 4,000 people were there, and the session was broadcast live to the entire country. Many people and religious leaders stood up and renounced their faith out of fear. His wife leaned into him and said, 
hey, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Jesus Christ. Knowing the cost, he stood and renounced their faith. Excuse me. He stood and declared to all that their loyalty was to Christ first. He was then kidnapped by the secret police and spent the next 14 years in prison, suffering horrific tortures and brutality. Even the Nazis were not as cruel to him as the communists. His wife was arrested and spent three years in concentration camps. Their nine-year-old son was forced to live on the streets. In 1965, Christians from Norway paid a ransom of $10,000 to get them out of the country. In 1966, he testified before the U.S. Senate about his inhumane treatment and torture. His story quickly spread. Soon after, they founded a ministry called Jesus to the Communist World, which would now become known to us today as Voice of the Martyrs, an organization to help advocate for persecuted Christians around the world, smuggling Bibles, supporting underground pastors, and giving financial aid to relatives who've lost those imprisoned or killed. Richard and Sabrina Wormbrandt's message would be used of the Lord as a major factor in the collapse of communism and the Ceausescu regime in Romania, a transformation that to this day blesses the citizens of Romania. In the 1990s, he and his wife appeared on Romanian television and were able to visit the very prison where he had been held to find there a repository of his books. He would go on to author many books read around the world and introduce tens of thousands to Jesus Christ right up to his death at 91 years old. There are many lessons we can learn from Richard and Sabrina. High among them is speaking the truth in difficult and tumultuous times often requires standing alone. And when one stands alone for the right reasons, the courage that's demonstrated brings courage to others. And today we're going to briefly consider standing alone. First, we're going to look at the meaning and necessity of standing alone, and then we will look at how to stand alone. But the truth is, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are never really alone. I mean, we may feel lonely, but we are never alone. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the original language means, I will never, no, never, no, never, ever leave you or forsake you. In John's gospel, in chapters 14 through 16, Jesus informed the disciples that he would send them the Holy Spirit who would live in them. The New Testament is filled with scriptures about Christ in us. In writing to Timothy, Paul said, All deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Standing alone never means standing solitarily. It means standing with God alone. Also, the scripture makes clear that we are members one of another. Peter's first letter, he called us living stones built up into a spiritual house. And of course, we know the well-known passage in Ecclesiastes where it says two are better than one and a threefold cord is not easily broken. So we're in community together. It is vital that we pray for each other and support each other. The fear and pain of standing alone can be real. The joy of walking together is priceless and the difference is the people in our lives. You know, standing alone 
means for this morning, knowing that Christ lives in me, I will speak and live the truth. Knowing that Christ lives in me, I will speak and live in truth. It is not when you or your friends go to the Don's to get some pizza and you happen to be gluten-free. And so you stand alone and refuse the pizza. We're not talking about that. This is speaking the truth and living the truth in the face of opposition that speaks lies. There are many people in history who stood alone and spoke truth and lived in times of great national, cultural, or circumstantial resistance. Elijah before Jezebel, you remember Esther had to risk her life going before the king, David before Goliath, you have Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, and of course Jesus Christ before the Jews. We could spend the afternoon giving historical examples. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 through 14. And in our, in our sermon archive, both Jim and Mike Minter have full messages on putting on the armor of God. We're just going to briefly look at it today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And then it continues to talk about the armor of God. This passage is very emphatic that to resist evil and the schemes of the devil, we stand in the Lord's strength. We don't run and compromise with lies. And our foundation to stand is cemented in truth. Jesus stated he is the way, the truth, and the life. The scriptures are called the word of truth. Paul wrote to Timothy that the church of the living God is the pillar and the support of the truth. One teacher said this, quote, the most valuable thing in the world is truth. But today, large segments of multiple generations are convinced that they get to have their own truth and you can have yours, even if they are in complete contradiction, end of quote. In contrast, in John chapter eight, Jesus states this, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, lying has always existed in our society, but never to the level that it has reached today. Lying ideologies and deception have become broadly embedded and entangled in every facet of society. Now, look, we have all lied in our lifetime, all of us here. And I hope that while we have lied, we have since admitted it, and receive forgiveness and cleansing from Jesus. Consequently, we are commanded and free to expose what's going on without being hypocrites. We are experiencing a kind of cultural whiplash towards a deeper immorality and humanism that's happening much faster than in other parts of the world. Identity politics encroaches on nearly every aspect of life and technology, Technology has us living in a surveillance state with government and big business having access to nearly everything about us. Every citizen can instantly video 
our words and actions of others and post it to the world in mere seconds. A well-known scholar wrote this, quote, the greatest levers of influence and power, money, education, entertainment, government, big business, the news, and pop culture are in the hands of the progressive left. They are attempting to transform legitimate debate over gay marriage into a hate crime. Transgenderism went from gender dysphoria to a variable litmus test of whether one is good or one is evil. If you don't affirm, then you are evil or you're a transphobe. There are few impediments to vulgarity or pornographic books which are defended as beneficial to students. The sexualization of our society marches on where historically and sound biblical institutions and teachers rationalize away God's clear truth on sexual boundaries. Premarital sex is rampant. Living together before marriage is now viewed as wisdom, and it's too common among followers of Jesus Christ. Adultery is common, and participation between same-sex partners is actually flaunted. A record number of girls are trying to become boys, with the only response being to affirm their feelings and assist the effort of something that we know is biologically and genetically impossible. High tech has been manipulated to change the way we access information, communicate, consume the news, buy and sell, and express ourselves. Social media can ruin a career in a nanosecond. Google can manipulate the order of search results to render us clueless. Confusion and depression is deepening and spreading. Oh, end of quote. A well-known author interviewed many men and women asking this question. What makes the emerging situation in the West, referring to U.S., Canada, and Great Britain, similar to what they fled under communist rule? They said elites and elite institutions with a creed that regards justice in terms of groups. It encourages people to identify with groups, whether ethnic, sexual, or otherwise, and to think of good versus evil as a matter of power dynamics between the groups. They seek to rewrite history and reinvent language to reflect their ideas of social justice. Further, they are constantly changing the standards of thought, speech, and behavior. You can never be sure when those in power will come after you as a villain for having said or done something that used to just be a difference of opinion. The consequences of violating these new taboos are extreme, including losing your livelihood and having your reputation ruined. Under the guise of diversity, inclusivity, and equity and other egalitarian jargon, they create powerful mechanisms for controlling thought and discourse, discourse and marginalizing dissenters as evil. Remember, those who take freedom couch it in the language of liberating victims from oppression. You and I are in a spiritual war. We are living in a soft totalitarian state. Is most of this a fad that will fade as the years unfold because of revival and a return to common sense? Is it blown out of proportion because the media hypes edgy, fringe, and rare stories? After all, most of our lives here don't directly encounter a lot of this. Some of, us, some of this, I think, will evaporate because of the resistance of saints and the majority, but not the sexual stuff. And plus, on top of that, never 
underestimate the power of the Lord Jesus and his patience to just love and change people's lives. And even though there are a lot of encouraging developments in resisting this onslaught, I refer us to a quote by Mike Minter. When sin enters the bloodstream of a society, it is first met with shock, then tolerated, then it's accepted, finally it's embraced, and then finally promoted. We are in the promotion stage on many immoral and destructive ideologies. No matter where you are on the continuum of the speed of societal decay, the time is to prepare spiritually and mentally now. Military personnel, firefighters, and law enforcement rigorously train and situationally prepare long before they confront a crisis. They are mentally prepared on how they will respond, and we should, should prepare as well, especially those of you who are younger or if you have students. I have known or read about too many who used to be lights in the Lord but flickered out because they were not prepared to stand alone and resist lies. I have never experienced any persecution like that that we read about in Luke chapter 6. In the 50 plus years that I've been in Northern Virginia, I have openly and freely talked about Jesus in business and in my neighborhood. And out of those 50 years, I've only had two occasions where a couple of people snapped back. Persecution here is very minor, unless you were raised in another country hostile to Christianity. And I'm sure that's the experience for most of you. Suffering for believing in Jesus Christ is very severe in other countries, and the voice of the martyrs tracks a lot of it, and we should remember these saints in our prayers. So that's a few comments on the meaning and necessity of standing alone. Now I want us together to consider how to stand alone. Return to Luke chapter 6 with me. Luke chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse 27, and this is about how to stand alone. It says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So after Jesus warned them about persecution, he tells them how to respond to the persecutors. Love, do good, bless, pray, let your stuff be taken, give when asked, all in the context of facing antagonists. And there's not a single one of us in this room who can respond that way. This is a supernatural response, and that's the point. It takes Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit in us to fulfill his commands. And while there is far more that we can say about how to stand alone this morning, there's at least three things we must do in order to be ready to speak and live the truth that we just read when we face opposition. And the first thing we must do is be filled with the Holy Spirit. The requisite for standing alone is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is indispensable to us, just like an operating system is to running a computer. God the Father did not have Jesus Christ the Son shed his blood, die on the cross, was buried and rise again the third day, 
just so that he could take us out of hell and into heaven, although he certainly does that. No, God's intent was to get out of heaven and into us. This is why Jesus said that when he went away, he would send another comforter, the Holy Spirit, into us. John chapter 14 through 16 elaborates on all this. According to Acts chapter 1, the beginning of this permanent indwelling happened to about 120 people waiting in the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The Greek word means 50 and refers to the 50 days that have elapsed since the wave offering at Passover. It signals the beginning of the ecclesia or church of Jesus Christ. This is why many scriptures talk about Christ being in us. Romans 8 states that his spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. Ephesians 1 talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The filling of the Holy Spirit is different than being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a command found in Ephesians 5, where it says, don't be drunk with wine, for that leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The grammar there means continually controlled by. We are warned earlier in the same letter not to quench or grieve the Holy Spirit because it's so easy for us to do. Why? Because in Galatians 5, it says the Spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. So you can't always do what you want to do. And those of us who are followers of Christ, we know exactly what that's about. It happens on a daily basis. A main question arises. How do we allow Jesus Christ to be God in our own experience and make the filling of the Holy Spirit a more consistent reality? Because if we detach Christianity from Christ, it is reduced to a dry dead religion, only an intellectual exercise impersonal to us. We were created with the moral capacity to choose through our soul. Whatever influences our mind and emotions will ultimately guide and control our will. Animals were only created with instincts. Therefore, we can study them and we can know how they're going to behave. Just take a lawnmower and push it over the nest of a bunch of yellow jackets in the ground. And you will find this, uh, this truth painfully true as they come out and sting you. And But before us, it takes our consent to depend on the Holy Spirit in order to him, for him to fill us. The only evidence that we can give of dependence on the Holy Spirit is our obedience to Jesus Christ. Our love for Jesus stirs our dependence upon his spirit and results in obedience to him. So that's a few thoughts on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there are others that could be added. So the requisite is for standing alone, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's some things regarding that to help you out. Well, how does that happen? First, prayer. Talk to the Lord. Start by giving thanks. Even the hardest situations that you are in, there is something you can give thanks to the Lord about. Pour out your hurts and uncertainties to him. It will really help you, even though he already knows exactly what's going on. Invite him into your day. 
and ask Christ to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Confess or acknowledge the sins of the flesh as soon as you are convicted of them. Don't wait for communion Sunday or late in the afternoon. Do it right away. Admit whenever you're convicted and feel guilty about your sin to Christ and to others if you've hurt them or offended them. I love the verse in 1 John chapter uh, 1, verse 9. If we acknowledge or confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great promise. And so next, what you want to do is be sure after you've prayed or when you're praying, you take some time to listen because you never know when biblical principles will be brought to your mind that relate to what you've been praying about. And when you pray, pray with fervency, with earnestness, because the effectual fervent prayer of a person who has the righteousness of Christ uh, accomplishes much. Next, you want to focus on Jesus Christ, not the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. John chapter 16, 13 and 14 tells us, he will not speak of himself, but glorify Christ. The letter in Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to focus our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, because he had to endure the contradictions of sinners, namely our own contradictions as we've been sinners. One thing that always helps in sparking our love for Christ is reflecting on the joy of our salvation. Because Jesus told the church of Ephesus to return to their first love, even though they had done many things right. Focusing on Jesus Christ means reflecting on renewing our love to him. Remember the hopelessness when we were lost and now the freedom that we enjoy as followers of his? Scripture says that those who have been forgiven much love much. And it only takes a few minutes of self-reflection and awareness to realize how much all of us have been forgiven. Focusing on Christ means doing our work in home or office with singleness of heart unto him, not to try to just please other people. And have gratitude in your heart, giving thanks for him as you go through life. All of this helps us be mindful of Jesus. Next, not only do you want to pray and focus on Christ, but offer your body. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. Did you know that Satan hates our body and wants to destroy it? That's why he is behind so much drug trafficking, drug addiction, and alcoholism. Because you and I are made in the image of God. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jim covered last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit because we were bought with a price. And our members, our eyes, our mouth, our hands and feet, they can become weapons of righteousness against the forces of darkness. Romans 6 tells us about yielding our members as instruments of righteousness. And then learn the scriptures. The Holy Spirit authored them. All scripture is God-breathed. We cannot speak and live in truth if we don't know the truth. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means you will also be filled with the Word of God. The two work in tandem. Colossians 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. The default position for too many young adults today is that truth and moral choices are just a matter of individual taste. 
It's personal. It's up to the individual. You have your truth. I've got my truth. Everything is relative. Hey, you do you, bro. Greg Epstein, Harvard's chief chaplain, chief chaplain, told the New York Times, we don't look to a God for answers. We are each other's answers. It sums up a lot of what people think around our country. Learning truth and wisdom takes time. Put your heart into it. A good learner asks questions and asks for help. None of us understands everything on our own. Study, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Again, we can't handle the word of truth if we don't know it. We should be very motivated because the scriptures make us complete in our understanding of life and equips us for every good work. Those scriptures that, uh, those classes that Noah mentioned this morning, equipping the saints classes, great things to go to. And then if you're filled with doubts and uncertainty about your faith or journey or who's God, the class we have on starting points, not even really a class, it's a conversational time together. Stop by the table after the service and talk to the people there. They'll explain to you what that's all about and maybe you could attend. And of course, we have our Defending the Faith Conference next week, and that's something that every student should attend. A.W. Tozer said this, Satan's greatest weapon is man's ignorance of God's word. If we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then we must pray, focus on Jesus Christ, offer our bodies every day, and learn the scriptures. I know all of that is just so basic, but it's those basic disciplines that we need to build into our lives if we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be able to stand alone and speak the truth. This is well illustrated by Peter in Acts. In chapter 3, Peter and John heal a man lame from birth. All the people are amazed that this man is walking and praising God. Then it's recorded in Acts chapter 3, 12. Peter says, hey, why are you looking at us as though by our own power or holiness, we made this man walk? No, it was in the, because of the name of Jesus Christ and that they were filled with the Spirit. So Peter goes on to give another sermon, teaching the people and preaching the resurrection from the dead through Jesus. This grieves and upsets the priest and the elders, and the, they take them before the high priest, and Peter and John the next day are, are there before those rulers, the ruling class of the Jews. The interrogation begins about the lame man that was healed, and eventually the leaders say this, quote, command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So recorded in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, you have cancel culture on full display, Stop talking about Jesus. It's disrupting the social order. It's disinformation, claiming he rose from the dead. It's hate speech, telling everyone they're sinners who need repentance and that there's salvation in nobody else. The demonic tactic is nothing new, and it appears many times through human history. Tragically, it has taken root in our country. But in the antagonistic environment, Peter and John stand alone on the truth and respectfully speak up saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you go ahead and be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. As fruitless, excuse me, as fruitfulness and ministry life continue, 
Eventually, they are arrested, thrown in prison. They are freed by angels from prison. They, then they are taken again. They are severely beaten, and then they are released. And they go away joyfully, saying how they were allowed to suffer for Jesus' sake. This history of Peter and others is remarkable. Remember, they were all aware of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead and also Lazarus from the dead. They were there when Jesus took the bread and the two fish and multiplied them so that it could feed 5,000 people. And they saw him walk on the water. Peter even got out and walked on water. And then they saw Jesus with one word, calm the sea, and the storm passed. They saw all of that and much more. But in spite of that, guess what happens? They, when they were with him, they realized, you know, they didn't have much courage. Because on the night of Jesus' arrest, they hid like mice being hunted by a house cat. They scattered like cockroaches when the lights are turned on. Remember the woman looked at Peter and said, hey, you were with Jesus. But due to the pressure and fear of being harmed, filled with what Peter ends up saying, he lies through his teeth. And he says, woman, I don't know the man. The transformational difference we skimmed over in Acts was that they had received and were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then the inner strength to stand alone and speak the truth continued no matter what. No human can stand in his own strength against the powers of darkness. It is only God's life in us that allows us to respond to persecution when it comes. And there are probably some of us here or online who are not prepared. And I'm trying to plant a seed that now is the time to be prepared. And if you have a student, definitely now is the time. A mind filled with scripture can critically evaluate secular society, see through the empty values of the modern world, and resist adopting its lies and philosophies. So number two in how to stand alone, the first, remember, was be filled with the Holy Spirit. The second is have a right attitude. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God perhaps may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. This is completely consistent with what Luke recorded Jesus saying to his disciples that we already looked at. Love, bless, pray, do good. In this instruction, don't quarrel, be patient and gentle, while you are correcting. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So speak, but do so with the right attitude. Let truth do the shouting and avoid fruitless arguments. Truth is a most powerful weapon against lies. Guard our thinking, guard our tongue, and guard our hearts so we can guard God's glory, hoping they will repent to the knowledge of the truth. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 15 says, With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. A perfect example of this is Paul with King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He has shared his testimony about how he used to throw followers of Jesus. He threw them in prison. He consented to their death. But then he was converted, and he started persuading Jews and Gentiles alike that Christ should suffer and rise from the dead. And here's what's recorded by Agrippa speaking to Paul. In a short time and with so little effort, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. 
King Agrippa said, because Paul used the right attitude. Last, courage. Be courageous. Courage is the mental strength to persevere and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 13, it says, act like men, be strong. The verb means to conduct yourself in a courageous way. We are to be strong and courageous, strong in faith in Jesus, strong in our understanding of scriptural truth, possessing discretion and wisdom, people dependent on the Holy Spirit, where the courage of our convictions causes us to live bodily from the new heart that God gave us, boldly, excuse me. And you know that concept of being courageous is throughout the Old Testament. Moses told the children of Israel and Joshua, be strong and courageous before they entered into the promised land. The Lord told Joshua the same thing. David, when he was with his son Solomon, talking to him about building the temple, said, be strong and courageous. He said the same thing to him when he was dying. And you could, you could find this concept repeated again and again. But if we are honest, most of us are afraid to speak up against sinful, lying ideologies when we're with a group of neighbors, at a teacher's meeting, in a classroom, or a training session or place of work. My first reaction would be hesitant. I'm telling you that. We fear what others think. We are afraid of being different, losing friends, being laughed at. It's so much easier to simply stay silent and walk away. Few of us want to face the pushback rejection, or career limitations that might result. But we must be mindful that our silence can be construed as agreement and can contribute to a lie taking root. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And part of the exposing is to be able to speak about it. In the Old Testament law in Leviticus and in many places, it, it, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets were told to speak out against people sinning and lying. It takes courage to speak up. Courage is the confidence that what we have to say or do is true, right, and just. Our courage and confidence will grow when we gain biblical convictions in why we believe what we believe. The disciples developed that courage because they first saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. The others that followed, though they didn't see Christ physically, also had that courage once they received the Holy Spirit. At the end of January, a Christian teacher in the California public school system named Mrs. Tapia was fired by the district for refusing to comply with their gender policies. Citing her faith in Jesus and biblical convictions, she felt she could not hide students' gender transitions from their parents. We're talking about 12 to 15-year-olds. She is an example of great courage in honoring the Lord, and she did so very respectfully. Wisely, she is taking the next step to expose and resist what's going on through the God-ordained judicial system in our country. Even as flawed as it sometimes is, it is the right thing to do on many occasions. But keep this in mind. It is also important to not always speak up. Ecclesiastes 3.7, there's a time to speak and there's a time to refrain from speaking. Proverbs 17.27, whosoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Sometimes it's just better to just chill. Timing is important. Consider the importance of right timing. 
making a private appeal to an authority is often more persuasive than speaking up right away. Years ago, several years ago, Loudoun County hired some consultants to produce a thorough report that included research and forecasts on a host of issues. A staff member in Loudoun then purposefully lied about data in the report to superiors in order to affect the outcome of policy decisions. Two young men who didn't work for the county did the painstaking effort of discovering the deception. They privately appealed to higher authority who confronted the staff member. This staff person admitted to the deception in tears and apologized, and the draft policy was reworded. Boldness without caution can become reckless and unwise. We all know examples of that. So in closing, when you leave today, I want all of us to recommit ourselves to preparing to speak and live the truth because we belong to Jesus Christ. John chapter 15 says this in 18 and 19, verse 18 and 19. If the world hates you, Jesus said, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because the world hates you. We will live at times finding ourselves standing in the minority or even standing alone concerning what is acceptable and what is not. Will we decide to obey Jesus or to compromise and follow the culture and the crowd? Eventually, followers of Jesus Christ will not have it easy. But Jesus encourages us to stay faithful, faithful to him despite opposition and stand alone because blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of him. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is amazing to think that you would reward us for standing for you and speaking truth, your truth. You are so merciful and kind to all. We so much pray that you would do a great work around the world and in our country in bringing back many souls to you and a revival amongst your people. Thank you for the promise of all that you're doing, that you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. Thank you again for being Lord and God over all. Amen.